This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by Fish Flight Entertainment. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast, where we pull back the curtain and expose the beating heart to the Vancouver film and television industry, namely the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. I'm Sabrina Ronnie Furbinger. History is written by the victors. You've heard that phrase before. It's often attributed to Winston Churchill, but it turns out he was appropriating something someone else had said before him, who was appropriating something someone else had said before him, and so on. Although the origin of the phrase is murky, the truth of the sentiment is undeniable. The history we're taught in schools is curated by the people in power. And for centuries in North America, the people in power have been male and they've been white which means that what we consider our history has been delivered to us through a patriarchal white supremacist lens. They decided what is important to remember. They decided what stories were of value and what stories didn't fit their white settler narrative. But even untold history is history. It matters. It deserves to be heard. And the new Knowledge Network documentary series, British Columbia, An Untold History, aims to tell stories from and about the land that is known today as British Columbia, that reveal that our true history is vast, complicated, vivid, dramatic, and dizzying. Over the course of four riveting episodes, we see that the region's history is a confluence of cultures, races, genders, and narratives. Through interviews, archival photography, film artifacts, and dramatic recreations, we learn about the bravery, ignorance, ingenuity, greed, selflessness, and fear that formed British Columbia into what it is today. It's complicated, like all history, but British Columbia and untold history helps us see the past for what it is so that we can make better sense of our present and hopefully, ultimately, not repeat the same mistakes. British Columbia and Untold History was commissioned by Knowledge Network with the support of the Rogers Documentary Fund, the Canada Media Fund, and the province of BC. It was written and directed by documentary filmmaker and producer, and most importantly, friend of the podcast, Kevin Eastwood. And I am delighted to welcome Kevin back to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast to reflect on his monumental adventure through BC's Untold History. Kevin! Eastwood, welcome back to the YBR Screen Scene Podcast. Thank you so much for having me back. And thank you, as always, for your amazing introductions. Every week I listen to this podcast and I'm always, one of my favorite moments is when people are always gobsmacked and humbled by your intros. They really, uh, yeah, you summed it up better than uh, than we could have. Aw, I love to hear that. Well, I mean, honestly, the task of writing an intro for this episode was nothing compared to the task of creating this documentary series about BC's untold history. 
where do you even start to tell a story like this one? That is a very tough question. I mean, uh, we had a very exhaustive development process. Um, we had an incredible research team uh, headed up by Jennifer Chu and then Tina Minifee, our producer, was also deeply involved in, in really trying to find a whole bunch of stories that we could draw from. I think our earliest um, development package had something like, it was 98 pages long and each page had a story. So there was 98 stories. I remember when I first saw that, I was like, oh my God, how are we gonna, how am I gonna try to parse this out and navigate what we are going to tell? And, and you know, to be honest, one of the first things I did was, okay, I just need to organize this in a way that makes sense to me. I'm gonna put it in chronological order because mm -hmm. they weren't in chronological order. And so the, the original version of the show that we presented to the network was something that was chronological. And we had kind of like the midpoint at the end of episode two would have been when BC joins Confederation in 1871. And we had like 200 years before that and then 150 years since. And um, and they said, yeah, no, 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 don't do that. We want it thematic. <laughs> so then we had to re-break the whole show, <laughs> toss it all up in the air and kind of find a a non-linear approach of how we were telling the stories. And that's what we went with in the end. Yeah. What the finished result is not all 98, it's a selection based on what we thought were the most important um, in kind of a, yeah, an appetizer for, for general audiences to kind of learn about why this place is the way it is. Confronting the framing of history and how history is often told through a, a male white supremacist lens is central to the series. How did you confront your own biases? And what steps did you take to ensure that the series would be told from a more inclusive perspective? I'm glad you asked that. I mean, you know, obviously I'm uh, not blind to the fact that I have, I enjoy extraordinary privilege as a white cis male and I am the director of the show and I'm occupying that seat. Um, I can't change who I am. Um, I, I, I like to strive to be as good an ally as I can be. Um, whether I am is for others to judge. But I did what I could to, we, we, everybody involved in the show tried to surround ourselves with as diverse and um, pluralistic a team as what we were also putting in front of the camera. Obviously our subjects, um, we, we specifically sought out people who are not normally the focus of, of the tellings of history. Um, and that's what I think is, is unique on that end. But then behind the scenes too, we had uh, an almost entirely BIPOC crew. Um, mm. You know, we had uh, Chinese Mexican cinematographer and an indigenous cinematographer, indigenous production manager, indigenous producer, indigenous locations manager, indigenous uh, location sound, indigenous narrator, indigenous composer, um, Chinese, Canadian, Indian head researcher. And, and all of those perspectives, I'd say, are all over the show. I mean, mm. this show wouldn't be what it is were it not for all of those key creatives and, and everyone that worked on the show. Um, you know, although I'm on set as the director, I think any film is a collaborative undertaking. Yeah. Um, and this I would say that comes through absolutely. But in particular, we wouldn't have got the interviews we got had it not been for the crew that we had. Um, yeah. I'm fully aware that like we had privileged access to spaces, really sacred spaces. I mean, once people see the series, they'll see we are 
filming interviews in longhouses, in pit houses, yeah. in a residential school, in a lot of really sacred spots. And those are not places that are normally, uh, that film crews are normally allowed in. And so we got to be there because of the access we were afforded because of the, of the work that Lena Minifi, our, our, our Indigenous producer, our producer, um, who had done a lot of work uh, and outreach with the communities and with the different nations that we engaged in. And, and then on the day when we'd show up and they'd see, you know, a lot of Indigenous faces, I think that changed what some of our interview subjects were comfortable in talking about. I think they, mm -hmm. they felt different. And as a director, you always want people to be giving the best version of an interview of a story that they ever give. I see that as being kind of foundational amongst documentary filmmaking is trying to get the best possible interview, making your subject feel um, supported, at ease, comfortable. Because yeah. otherwise you're not, if, if, if their performance, and I put quotes around that, rings false or they're nervous, it, it's gonna fall flat in the same way that a bad performance in a drama would. So you want people to be in the best zone that they can be. And, you know, the dynamic, the crew that we had really contributed to that. So although I asked the questions, uh, I really cannot overstate the contributions of everybody on our team in making this what it became. Yeah, we're gonna speak about some of the specific stories from those multitude of stories, you know, that are told in a little bit. But before before we do that, you know, I, I'm looking at a lot of your past work. I mean, the Humboldt documentary, After the Sirens, even Emergency Room. These have dealt with trauma. And there is a lot of trauma in the history of this region. So what does trauma-informed historical documentary filmmaking look like? And how does it compare to your previous documentary filmmaking? I mean, it's funny. I, I had been on a bit of a roll of doing two projects back to back that dealt with trauma. And I was, I was thinking I was gonna take a break after that because <laughs> that takes its toll. Yeah, um, yeah. And then I got asked to do this. And um, uh, I think uh, naively at the outset, I thought it would be less intense I mean, for people that don't know, that I was coming off doing a documentary about the Humboldt Broncos bus crash. Yeah. And before that, uh, a documentary about paramedics and PTSD, and the epidemic of PTSD amongst those frontline workers. Um, and those were both intense uh, journeys to go on. Um, this was that as well, and arguably um, much more intense. Um, I, I realized pretty quickly that the stories we were talking, I, I thought because we were looking in a rear view mirror that we're talking about things from the past that perhaps it wouldn't feel the same. Um, but no, once we get into it, we're talking with people about their lived experiences, their family's experience, their community's experience, and all of that stuff is visceral. And, hmm. you know, there's, um, it's not necessarily in the, what winds up in the show, but there was a lot of tears and a lot of emotion um, in a lot of these interviews. And, you know, we're, we try to be, I try to be as careful as possible to make sure people are not being triggered or, or re-traumatized when they're talking about things and everybody yeah. that went there with their stories did so willingly um there's discussions beforehand about what we'd be talking about everybody had been we'd met with and had interviews and pre-interviews before we ever showed up with the camera but still the the cumulative impact of it, you know i would see the toll it would take on them and then i'd look at our crew and i'd realize that we've experienced this times many many more being the receptacles of these stories so it definitely was uh intense and look again i'm uh 
I enjoy a very privileged existence, and I know that a lot of the stories that we were hearing that I was on the receiving end are things that I'm not directly impacted by, um, but that's not the same for the crew. A lot of the crew were really affected at times, and that was something we would have to do some kind of check-ins and kind of um, team care to make sure everybody was okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, and even just the communities we were in. I mean, most of the filming was done pre-COVID, but then there was still some filming that had to happen after that. And, you know, every all the events in the last year and a half, it's um, shocking how much has come to the fore that we were already talking about. And that just made the experience of receiving these stories that much more intense. Yeah. Let's talk about the specific of some of these stories then. Uh, I, I know watching the series, there were some stories that just completely blew me away, uh, in, including... Um, well, the, the reality of some of the men after whom streets are named of in our town, you know, <laughs> uh, like Tretch and Dunsmuir and, uh, and Douglas, um, and, and also uh, what we lost when Hogan's Alley was completely erased. You know, what, what were some of the stories from this region's history that, that you learned that just blew you away? Well, I, I love that you touched on some of the things that now have, you know, even happened in the last year. I mean, we, City Council just agreed unanimously a few weeks ago to uh, rename Trutch Street. And Woo! I think, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to mix words. Trutch is a monster and an asshole, and that yeah. guy does not deserve to get, should not ever have had a street named after him. There are mm -hmm. other people in history um, that things are a little more complex. I would put Douglas in that category, but Trutch was an out-and-out -out asshole. Um, just to give viewers, not to, you know, spoil the show, but like, he's the guy that's responsible for redistributing 90% of the reserve lands that were given to Indigenous people or allocated to Indigenous people, which obviously is an injustice all on its own that they were uh, <laughs> told what lands could be theirs when this was obviously their land for yeah. millennia. Um, but the fact that then he carved it into 10% of what it had originally been based on what Douglas had allocated. So that guy yeah. sucked. Uh, he totally sucked. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to the day that the street signs are down. And Dunsmuir, same thing. I mean, to this day, Dunsmuir and his family are still responsible for the worst industrial accidents in the history of this country. And yeah. so the fact that we have a major sign over the Georgia Viaduct that says Dunsmuir and City Center, I just think that really sucks too. For all yeah. the people whose families were involved in those mines, with especially a lot of the Chinese Canadians that died in those mines, that guy should not get to have his name plastered all over the city. Anyway, those yes. are some of the stories that um, you just touched on. In terms of the ones that I was surprised by, I mean, the main opening story, the Fraser Canyon War. I the Fraser Canyon War! I had heard about the Fraser Canyon War, but I didn't really get it. I didn't really understand what had happened. And Can I just say for listeners, Indigenous people shut down the gold rush and pushed out foreign-born miners in what was it 1850 1858 1858 yeah that's I mean, a, that's huge why did not, i not learn that in school exactly were it not for the Inglakapmuk people and their allies this soil that i'm sitting on depending on where listeners are uh would be america vancouver yeah. in american territory where that line would have been perhaps it wouldn't have gotten the whole province who knows but it was the Inglakapmuk people that kept the invading American miners at bay. Um, yeah. And so that story, which is predominantly told by 
Kevin Loring, the fabulous Kevin Loring, who is an Ingrid Hapmuth playwright and the artistic director for Indigenous Theatre at the National Arts Arts Centre in Ottawa. I mean, Kevin, I've known Kevin for many years. Kevin's daughter was actually in Pregoland. Um, Whoa, uh, hold on there. I did not know that. That's amazing. Absolutely. And and his wife is also in it as well, uh, Jody Kay. Um, but uh, oh, it all comes together now. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. But uh, Kevin, uh, I haven't talked to Kevin in a while, and I, I knew his play, which is the, where the blood mixes, which is all about is where he's from, Lydon, which is was the Inglakapuk uh, village of Kamshin, mm. uh, but is now today known as Lydon. Um, and that's where all these events happen. That's where a full blown war happened that was the product of an act of sexual violence by miners on the Inglakapmuk woman that were down by the, the Fraser River, yeah. and that led to a full-on like war. And they, it was their leader that basically found, uh, brokered a peace accord and brought a halt to the bloodshed. Um, and I was surprised, given how much, like you know, throughout this process, things that we've been looking at became front-page news in, in in the time since. So when Lyndon tragically was destroyed in in June. July um, with the wildfires. I was expecting more people to talk about why that is a significant spot. There were there was discussions about being the capital of people there, but I wanted to like scream every time I was reading the news or watching the news. Like, what are you talking about? This is the village. The people here are responsible for this not being America. Yeah, Yeah, British then swooped in and took over in that moment, but. Were it not for them, this would be a totally different place. And um, yeah. I was surprised how little we know our history that none of the media coverage I saw ever spelled that out. And, you know, those were the people mm. that have now lost all their homes in, in that community. Amazing, too. I mean, you talk about... I, 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 I'm a student of history. I love history. And I think that history contains spoilers. You know, and it's amazing. There are so many instances within, you know, this series where I'm like, we haven't come far, far at all. We haven't progressed. You know, when you look at the the xenophobia and the um, anti-Asian hate that we are seeing today, it's it's straight out of 1907, 1908. You know, we're repeating a lot of, which I think that brings me to brings me to you know as the end credits roll on the various episodes what kind of conversations would you like people to have what kind of of questions would you like people to be asking themselves other people or bringing to you know when they're reading the news or even history Uh, i would hope that people um learn some of the positive stories like obviously we've had to tell the heinous shit because it's abundant um, but I, you know, we didn't want it just to be all the traumatic stories and basically, you know, what's called trauma porn. Um, mm. We also tried to include the stories of incredible resilience, incredible bravery, incredible resistance. And I hope people are inspired by that and realize that those acts were generally uh, perpetuated by indigenous people, Chinese yeah. Canadians, Japanese Canadians, African Canadians. Um, a whole bunch of other groups. Um, the the fact that you know I, all of these moments, whether it be as I mentioned the Fraser Canyon War, but there's also great alliances that happen. For instance, you mentioned 1907 when the terrible anti-Asian riots happened here in Vancouver, 
there was incredible alliances between different communities, between the South Asian community, between the Chinese community, between the Japanese Canadian community. Yeah. And those groups who were separate groups were basically helping each other. And I find that incredibly inspiring. When you hear about like the South Asian community coming, like stepping up and for raising $60,000 for the Komagata Maru incident, that is incredible. Like $60,000 yeah. at that point was a tremendous sum of money. And you yeah. realize how many people, you know, because we're the sum of all of these communities, how many people, how many communities really did great and amazing things. The stories of um, Japanese Canadians who had just endured the terrible internment, which is a nice euphemism, it should be called something else, those are concentration camps, yeah. um, helping people like the Dukabors when they were basically incarcerated themselves. Yeah. Um, so you see all these different groups helping each other. And, you know, it, it, for me, it was shocking to realize how many of these locations had been used as the sites for incarceration for different groups, whether it be homeless people, Japanese Canadians, Dukabors, like a lot of these same areas were basically used to um, contain people. And as awful as that is, what you see is also the stories of bravery that come through. And you realize mm -hmm. that it's more often those stories of bravery and resistance that have shaped what our community is today because community is ultimately i don't think I, I haven't given up on society i believe that there's hope for us um and i think that's an important message to send and you realize how many people have done great things that have shaped what we're what we get to enjoy today our yeah, rights, that, our, you know who has franchise all of that our labor rights all of that those things were were fought for by these people yeah there, there was one of your guests who said the histories of communities never take place in silos and i thought that was incredibly powerful the dukabors that like that whole the whole history of them literally growing you know their fruits and vegetables and selling it to the japanese canadians in internment and giving it to them like basically at a loss to themselves you know just to feed them you know was incredible and you did mention um place and uh, you know, talking about how a lot of the same sites were used to to uh, imprison people. Um, one of the things that I think a lot of people in Vancouver also don't realize um, is the fact that uh, Hastings Park uh, at uh, you know PNE was a place where um, Japanese Canadians were were held uh, in inhumane, inhuman conditions um, before being, you know, sent off to the the concentration camps, you know, in in the interior and in Alberta and, you know, further east. And so there are a lot of Japanese Canadians, you know, who, because I worked for the Powell Street Festival for many years, who, who, um, who refused to step foot there, you know, be, you know, because the places where the, it, because, you know, the women and children and elders were, you know, quote unquote, housed in the livestock buildings, you know, at where, you know, people wander around and like, oh, look, there's the cows, like, and it's a joyous place in the summer. And it's like, you know, but we've forgotten. It was so there, like there are people alive who were penned up in stalls and, you know, forced to, to you know defecate in the troughs there like it's just it's horrifying and that's within our living like in the living memory of people who are alive right now so i mean i remember the first time i ever went to places like new york or paris i remember thinking oh there's so much more history here wow because that's what we've been fed through popular culture and right. i remember coming back to vancouver thinking oh vancouver has no history it's all so boring 
Hmm. I had no idea any of these things. And now I walk in those places and I feel those ghosts. I can, yeah, I've been on the p e grounds, but if I, I don't know if I could because now I've seen those photos. Now I am yeah. shocked to see that the room that I saw Nirvana play in, in the p e forum, was filled with hundreds of Japanese Canadians. And we have the photos in our, in our series of, you know, just a room filled with, you know, really cheap bunks. And as yeah. you say, that was where the, that were the kind of the holding center for all the Japanese Canadians in the lower mainland before they were shipped off to the interior to the, to the camps. And, you know, the fact that what we now kids go and take tours of the, the livestock building, that was where they were living for like a couple of months. And it's just the conditions they were subjected to are just awful. Awful. Um, but, you know, as you also said, there are moments of, of, Joy. There are moments of surprise. This, this is this film is also it's a it's a or this this is this like honestly every episode is like a film, you know. So I was like, I, I feel like I've seen like a, a whole series of films, but you know, like there's this the series contains multitudes. Um, so you know, you will experience a wealth of of emotions watching this. For you though, can, can you like what were some of your most memorable moments from the experience of filming? this series? I mean, the positive memories are always getting to meet interview subjects. That's yeah. my greatest joy of being a documentary filmmaker is you get to meet people you would otherwise never get to meet. I met a lot of heroes on this project. Mm. Um, I got to meet people that are now new heroes of mine. Like, I loved having the opportunity to speak to so many people who have been either connected to the history or have been activists or have been leaders. Uh, yeah, I, I have a, I, I think it's a great privilege to be able to like call up somebody that you've read about or heard about or followed for years and have an excuse to have to have a conversation with them. It's, it's wonderful. Like, uh, you know, and there's people that I had had connections with before. There's a few kind of um, re revisited subjects from perhaps some of the films I've worked on in the past. For instance, Chief Alan Wilson and Gu mm -hmm. who were both of the Haida Nation were both featured in Haida Gwaii on the Edge of the World, which Charles Wilkinson directed, who I was one of the producers on. Um, they, they're in this. Um, Rex Weiler, who I had been in Eco Pirate, which Trish Dolman directed and I produced, uh, returned. Paul Spong from Orca Lab. These were, you know, the, some of the founding members of Greenpeace. It was really uh, wonderful to get to reconnect with these people. And the reason I'm reconnecting with them is because they've done incredible things. They've, they've changed history and so it's a real privilege and an honor to get to meet them and you know um artists like luann neal donna cranmer these are artists whose work i had known uh, oh and sarah florence davidson who's another person that obviously <laughs> i've known before so it was just a treat and a delight to get to reconnect with people i, ha I had known from before and thrilled to meet new ones so that's what stands out in terms of even more memorable experiences i mean just crisscrossing across the province and seeing places mm. I've never been. We went to um, Fort St. James, which is where uh, James Douglas was almost killed. Um, and that's a story in the show where um, legendary chief, uh, Dakal Chief, Chief Kwa, uh, spared his life. Um, and I, I found Fort St. James just a fascinating place. I mean, it's steeped in so much history. When we were there, it was in the thick of winter. It was covered in snow. It was freezing. It was like minus 34. Um, I remember when we sat down to interview and we were interviewing a Nikosli elder who's the great granddaughter of Chief Kwa. Mm -hmm. And you know, she's uh, an, Lillian Sam's an elderly woman. 
we were like, oh my God, we need to get all the heaters in here so that she's comfortable. We were filming inside the actual fort, again, a privileged location to get to have access to. Yeah. And so we had all of these like um, heaters at her feet, those space heaters like that you get from a Canadian tire. So her little spot was warm. Although in, in the show, if you watch closely, you'll notice some, uh, you can see her breath at one point because she's facing mm. <laughs> immediately. Uh, you know, the effects that they paid for in Titanic, we got it for real. Uh, but at the beginning of that interview, I put down my coffee, which was a terrible Tim Hortons coffee because I, that's the only thing you can get there. Mm -hmm. I took a sip because I'd just been handed it by a member of the crew. Took a sip, put it down, started asking my questions. About 10 minutes in, I reached for my coffee while she's answering. Took a sip and it was a block of ice. <laughs> and then I was like, oh my God, this is sub-zero conditions. This is not good for our crew because we were all there shivering. We did not get to have the space heaters directed us. So we try, I tried to wrap up the interview as quick as I could so that none of our poor crew got hypothermia. But that stands out, um, as do many of the other great locations we got to film. Oh, fantastic. Uh, so each, each of the four episodes deals with a set of histories. I mean, you, you mentioned that they're grouped by theme. We have change and resistance, labor and persistence, migration and resilience, and nature and coexistence. I love a hypothetical. I love to think that this is the beginning of a journey. What are some other groupings that you think would be worth exploring in hypothetical future episodes? Oh gosh. Well, I don't know what the groupings would be because that would that would require a little more thought than I'm getting. Yeah. Or other I, themes, you know, because you did say you had like 96 pages and each page had a, had a bunch of different ideas. Absolutely. And there was absolutely stories and interviews that we did didn't make it into the show, not because they weren't important, not because they weren't powerful and meaningful. We just didn't have room. There's only so much history you can cover in four hours, which is actually really, really, really tight uh, mm -hmm. when we're trying to cover a large expanse. So I feel and I will uh, I feel shame about this. Uh, I feel we've let down some groups. I feel mm. what was would have been our LGBTQ uh, story is not there, um, yeah. and I feel that is a glaring omission. Um, I feel that we don't talk about youth enough, and um, uh, those would be the two things that stand out primarily to me. If somebody said, hey, here's some more money, go make another episode, those would be some of the stories I would focus on. Um, yeah. It was, you know, and it's not like there's not a lot of important history there. It just, it was hard to find. You're always limited both by time, but also where there's a logical um, thread to follow. And we tried and tried and those ones didn't, didn't make it in. Um, so I, I feel personally, uh, that was, uh, I feel personally responsible and I feel bad. Um, don't feel I, bad. Don't feel bad. I don't want you to feel bad. No, no, no. I, uh, I hope that, um, <laughs> members of, uh, yeah, the LGBTQ, uh, 2S plus community, uh, understand that, um, there are, deep part of the history and I, you know the stories we got specifically about what had happened in Vancouver um, certainly in the 80s the what the LGBTQ community was subjected to in terms of firebombings at yeah. Little Sisters and stuff Little is sisters. of the same magnitude as all the other horrific uh, injustice and prejudice and mistreatment uh, that every other group was subjected to um, that we talk about. Well, I am itching for future episodes, so I might be tweeting at knowledge and be like, hey, please tell, please get the team to tell these stories. Um, I just want to speak a little bit about, because I have you on the line, and so I got to ask, what impact do you see 
the last 18 months, specifically COVID, having on the documentary filmmaking realm? Um, well, I mean, it, obviously more people are watching documentaries than ever before. That was happening before the pandemic, um, you know, in part because now they're really successful on, on streamers. Netflix yeah. puts new documentaries and documentary series <clears throat> online all the time. And so that was already happening. I think um, all the events of the last couple of years, you know, it's hard to unpack everything between COVID, Donald Trump administration, um, the death of George Floyd, um, as you mentioned, anti-Asian hate, uh, and then going back even a little further, but not that much further, Me Too. Like there's so many things that have happened and coalesced in a really short period of time. Mm. Um, and that it's felt really accelerated. And I think those are all big ideas that we need to grapple with um, through sometimes nonfiction. Mm. Uh, and so there's still obviously a lot of space for fiction to tackle those ideas and themes and issues. Um, but there's certainly been a lot of documentaries covering all of those ideas. And whether or not those are the ones that have necessarily done well, I mean, there's been a whole host of um, post-Trump era documentaries and things looking at the Capitol riots. Um, some of them are great. Some, you know, I, I thought the series that looked at QAnon and the rise of it and um, other things have been quite strong. There was that amazing New York Times analysis of the events of, of of the January 6th riot that was really incredibly detailed and comprehensive and as good as any actual like documentary you've seen on Netflix and it was just mm. on the New York Times website. Yeah. Uh, so I think those things help, but I don't actually know if COVID really has contributed to any of it. There's just been so much happening. Um, you know, we talk about like how much bad stuff is still happening, but I, I do sometimes see the needle moving a little bit in progress. When we started out making this documentary, one of the earliest conversations we had with um, one of our subjects uh, when we were trying to explain what we were doing was he basically thought out said, I'm not interested in talking to you guys unless you're gonna be talking about how this is the history of the construction of a white supremacist state. And two years ago, two and a half years ago when we had that conversation, I remember going, wow, mm. it's a big uh, thing to, and I said, we, we are down for it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we want your voice in it. But yeah. I hadn't heard that talk at that point. Yeah. Now we've been hearing it a lot. Yeah. In the last year and a half since tragically George Floyd, we are all well aware now of what you know white supremacy is and how um, the massive racial inequity we have in even so-called progressive places like Canada. Yeah. So that's no longer a wake-up call. It feels almost quaint now that like when we were first crafting the, the first couple of episodes, we were very conscious of when we actually deployed that term white supremacy because we didn't want to use it too early on because we thought some viewers might have a knee-jerk reaction yeah we don't want to pander to racists but we do know that there's sometimes more conservative or traditional viewers amongst the large viewing demographics we thought we needed to warm up to basically asserting that we live in a white supremacist state uh now that <laughs> doesn't seem necessary so i see that as progress that the cultural conversation has progressed to the point that it has which i don't think I ever predicted, and now I feel a lot of our show, I'm like, ah, oh, we almost didn't need to tell that part because people are already talking about it. Um, you know, I, I I think it's still pertinent and it's still worth repeating, but it's uh, it's been surprising to me. And I think that's a sign of progress that we're talking about these things. I certainly, even in the film industry, I think it's amazing all the you know, ton of work to go, obviously. But mm. I think it's really great that we've seen, um, you know, the the, higher BIPOC initiatives that we have that we 
the website, there's two websites where you can go to hire BIPOC film and television creatives. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully that, you know, the attention on gender parity in film and television, uh, I think hopefully all of that uh, continues to bring things to the place that they should be, real, real equity. I agree with you completely, clearly. Where can people find and discover and enjoy and savor your series? Uh, our series, which is not just mine. Um, yours, yours. <laughs> Kevin Eastwood's British Columbian. No, not <laughs> not uh, at all. Big team behind it. The, the series will be, uh, well, first of all, we get to have a special presentation at the Vancouver International Film Festival, which yes. I'm overjoyed about. So that's on Friday, October 8th. Uh, so if people are listening to this, they might still be able to get tickets when this plays. Um, and that will be followed by a creator's talk with myself, plus Lena Minifee, the producer, and Trish Dolman, the executive producer. Uh, and then, if you can't get to that, it will premiere on Tuesday, October 12th at 9 p.m. on Knowledge Network, with each week having a new episode at Tuesdays at 9. And it will be streaming on Knowledge, too, once it's, uh, once it's aired. Fantastic. I love the Knowledge Network site, by the way. I stream... I've streamed a lot of your stuff on there, come to think of it. Kevin Eastwood, you will come back, yes? Uh, it would be a pleasure and an honor. Same. I right back at you. It's like a mutual admiration society. Kevin, where can our listeners find you, follow you, celebrate you on all the social meds? I'm on Twitter. People are welcome to follow me there. But honestly, I just like it when people walk, watch the things that I've uh, been involved in and have worked on. So. You know, sure, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm just Kevin Eastwood, Kevin underscore Eastwood. But I would say if you haven't seen any of the previous things I've worked on, it would mean even more to me that you watched any of those. So feel free to go on to knowledge.ca, which as you mentioned, is a fabulous free streaming service where you can watch all sorts of great films and TV series. There's tons of great, amazing international dramas on there. That's where I watched Borgen, which is one of my favorite TV series. Um, but you can also watch any of the films of Charles Wilkinson's that I've been uh, privileged to get to produce. So High to Modern most recently is on there. High to Guy on the Edge of the World, which we mentioned, is on there. Um, and then also my previous series for Knowledge Network, Emergency Room. So if you just Googled Knowledge Network plus any of those titles, Emergency Room plus High to Guy or plus High to Modern, you would find it and then you could watch those. I'm gonna make it really easy for people. Go to yvrscreenscene.com to the episode page, check the footnotes. There's gonna be links to every single Kevin Eastwood project that's on Knowledge Network uh, right there for you. So just click and enjoy. Thank you, Thank Kevin. You Thanks, it's always a real treat to get to talk to you. Such a treat. Thank you. Thank you, listeners. Please like, subscribe. Leave us a review if you are so inclined. They help us find even more listeners and we can keep these conversations going. You can find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at YVRScreenscene. The YVR Screen Scene podcast is hosted and executive produced by me, Sabrina Ronnie Furminger, and it's edited by Simon Furminger. Special thanks to Mariana Furminger for recording our Patreon ad to Paul Furminger for technical support, and to Dane, not Furminger, Devlet for the original music. Wivier Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And cut! This ad begins with a story about an important but largely forgotten piece of Hollywood North history, the Fish Flight. 
In the 1980s, the fish flight was an early morning flight from Vancouver that delivered fresh fish to Los Angeles before the start of the business day. These were the early days of Hollywood North, before digital deliveries and fast transfer speeds, and the pioneers of the Vancouver film industry began loading up the fish flight with film reels so Hollywood execs could review the footage shot on the previous day. The fish flight was also one of the building blocks of the visual effects and animation mecca that is present-day Vancouver. And Fish Flight Entertainment builds on this legacy. Fish Flight Entertainment serves the games, film, and television industries. We remember the days of the fish flight and attack our projects with the same passion as those pioneering days of yore. We believe in jumping off the cliff and building our wings on the way down. And who knows? That old fish with improvised wings may even fly. Learn more about Fish Flight Entertainment at fishflightentertainment.com. That's fishflightentertainment.com.